Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a surprise ruling from the Supreme Court striking down the Alabama Republican legislature's flagrant gerrymandering in a state that is 27% black, with only one out of seven congressional districts representing African Americans. Joining us to discuss the extent to which this ruling could reverse the growing lack of legitimacy and loss of public respect for the court, which has grown radically out of touch with the mainstream with recent reactionary and unpopular rulings on abortion, guns, health and safety and climate change, is Michael Waldman, President and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. He was Director of Speech Writing for President Bill Clinton and is the author of The Second Amendment, a biography, and The Fight to Vote, a member of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. His latest book, Just Out, is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Then we'll look into whether the breaching of the dam in Ukraine that has caused catastrophic environmental damage is an act of ecocide as the International Criminal Court begins to consider adopting ecocide as a crime against humanity like genocide. Joining us is Kate McIntosh, the Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law. She was an administrator responsible as Deputy Registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and previously was a legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders and was part of the post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda. She's also the Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide. Then finally, we'll assess the impact on European public opinion of revelations in the Washington Post that a small group of Ukrainian operatives were behind the blowing up of the Nord Stream gas pipelines. Joining us is Charles Kupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security. He's the author of How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and his latest book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Michael Waldman, who's president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. His latest book just out is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Waldman. Great to be with you. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And the Supreme Court uh, came down with a very uh, surprising ruling, at least most people felt it was surprising, in upholding uh, the Voting Rights Act in the case in Alabama, where there's been absolutely flagrant gerrymandering, where the population is 27% black, there are seven congressional districts, and there's only one that represents African Americans. And a majority opinion in this five to four vote was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, who was famous or infamous for striking down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act on the basis that he thought that racism uh, was a thing of the past in America. So uh, what do you make of it, Michael? Well, it was a surprise for all the reasons you just said. It comes after a decade in which the Supreme Court really went after the Voting Rights Act, and John Roberts led that effort. Um, But here, five justices, the two conservatives who joined the liberals were Roberts and Kavanaugh, said that the Voting Rights Act still could be used and should be used to combat gerrymandering uh, that dilutes the voting power of black citizens and and other uh, communities of color. And and at one level, it should be a not surprising decision because it merely upheld longstanding rules and the actions of the lower court, which included, among other things, judge all the judges had been appointed by President Trump. But at another level, it's pretty surprising given Roberts's hostility to the Voting Rights Act. Um, he, among other things, said, well, look, um, the provision here that the Alabama Republicans and legislature were, were challenging uh, this provision was something Congress really carefully considered. And as aficionados know, Roberts himself very vigorously fought that provision when he was a young lawyer, when it was in Congress. And he even quoted an op-ed by a Justice Department official. And one journalist has speculated that um, that was an op-ed Roberts himself had, <laughs> had ghostwritten. So uh, it is surprising. It's very welcome. It's a big win for civil rights. As I say, it, it means that the part of the Voting Rights Act that was around yesterday is still around today and can be used to fight gerrymandering, but there's a long way to go to restore the strength of that vital civil rights law. Well, but I still find it extraordinary, though, and I guess it's perhaps naive on my part, to think that an African-American like Justice Clarence Thomas would vote against the enfranchisement of the 27% African-American population in Alabama. And yet, in the contentious confirmation hearings some time back with the Anita Hill, etc., you recall how Clarence Thomas used his blackness as a defense when he accused them of a, a high-tech lynching. So you can't have it both ways. Well, and Th- Thomas is, is interesting in some really uh, puzzling ways in that he doesn't deny the existence of racism or the centrality of race in American history or American life. Um, he he was basically a black separatist when he was younger. He memorized the speeches of Malcolm X, not of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but he can drew the conclusion that, well, the society is really racist and that anything you try to do to address that is going to make things worse. And so... Uh, I, it's a his his trajectory is something of a mystery in a lot of ways, but 
he's not only been on the court for a long time, he has been by far the most radical member of the court in the way he approaches the Constitution. He does not believe in precedent. Um, he says that stare decisis, which is the Latin phrase the lawyers use to talk about following precedent, he says that's just for people who don't want to think. Um, he believes the way to interpret the Constitution is to go back in an originalist style and just look at what it meant back when it was ratified. And he has longstanding been kind of on the fringe of the court, but now his ideas dominate. And even though he doesn't hold the gavel, he holds the influence. So in many ways, not this ruling today, fortunately, in my view, but as a broader matter, his views have continued to shape the court and push it hard in a right direct right wing direction. Yeah, but going back to seventeen ninety one or whatever, when the originalists want to go back to the time when the founding fathers basically just wanted only white men of property to vote, he would have been completely out of luck, right? It's a frankly reactionary <laughs> implication in the sense that the idea that we should be governed today in 2023 by the social views of property-owning white men in 1791 means that the time when women could not vote or own property in most places, most cases, when black people were enslaved, when they used leeches for health care, and when you needed to load your musket for 10 minutes with powder but to, to pull off one shot, all the things that are so different from today uh, from the diverse, changing, growing country we have been for two centuries, but that we certainly are now. It's it's just an absurd way to run a country to say, oh, actually, what we need to do is take a time machine back to the powdered wig days and ask them what we ought to do. It has never been how our country has governed itself, and it makes no sense to try to have that be the case now. But your new book, uh, Michael Wallman, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America, covers the period of just the last couple of years, right, 2022 and 2023, and in particular, over three days in June of 2022, the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion. Clarence Thomas, who we're talking about, even went further, suggesting that they could go after privacy rights and contraception, etc. They also limited the ability of the EPA to reduce the prospects of dealing with global warming radically loosening curbs on guns amid an epidemic of mass shootings, and then embrace this legal theory that we're talking about, originalism. So let me ask you about what Senator Whitehouse has been trying to get through to the public for some time, and whether you agree with his analysis that, in effect, there has been a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court, uh, driven by laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism, and that one man... Leonard Leo has largely handpicked the supermajority, and he, of course, has at his disposal now at least $1.6 billion worth of dark money. So what do you think of that analysis? No, it, I think there's a lot of validity to it. I always used to look at the Federalist Society, which you know, started as a student club and has become the most effective judicial operation and certainly judicial machine in the country's history. I always used to say, well, they're very effective. They don't seem actually to have that much money when you look at their publicly filed um, finances. Well, now, as we know, it turns out that, in fact, somebody had given Leonard Leo $1.6 billion to run ads, to 
create organizations that then file briefs with the just judges and justices who they've picked. Um, Leonard Leo gave Trump the list of justices, the people he should consider picking for the court and on and on. Uh, it's a faction of a faction that has seized control of this branch of the government that has enormous power in our system has over the years claimed enormous power, even more than the Constitution probably imagined, and that is unelected, and where the people in it have lifetime terms. And so the recourse uh, for addressing the Supreme Court is is less than in the case of uh, Congress, say, where you can vote them out, at least in theory. So, you know, I think as as Senator Whitehouse, among other things, has been drawing attention to the corruption issues at the court. It's important to remember the corruption is not just, you know, an ethics matter. I mean, ethics is important, but that's also like, you know, can I have this cup of coffee or not from from a from somebody? Harlan Crow, as we now know, has been subsidizing the lifestyle of Justice Thomas for decades now. It used to be it was disclosed for a while. Then the Los Angeles Times two decades ago wrote about it. So Thomas simply stopped disclosing it. He did not just fancy trips and jet trips. He bought Thomas's mother's house and renovated it with Mrs. Thomas living in it or with Thomas's mother living in it um, and other things of that nature, which if we read about them in the Tammany Hall days, we would say, well, that's obviously political corruption. We know that's the way you kind of make the senators stay in your pocket. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary to have evidence, at least, of a Supreme Court justice that way. But it's but it's all part of an ongoing ideological capture of the courts, which is beyond one donor, one person, one justice, but all throughout the system, uh, very extreme conservatives marching in lockstep, moving together. Now, all of which is to say that's one of the reasons today's decision was such a surprise, <laughs> because people have come to rely on, you know, to the extent there is a swing vote, it might be Roberts and Kavanaugh. It just happened to be the case that while Roberts should have voted the way he did today, people thought he wasn't going to because he had previously expressed such strong hostility to this very position and to the Voting Rights Act. So that's part of our reason for breathing a sigh of happy relief at this moment. But uh, we're not we're far from out of the woods yet when it comes to the Constitution, racial justice and the courts. So one of the things that Senator Whitehouse has pointed out, though, which I think is at the heart of the problem, is that he suggests that the plutocrats behind all the dark money that Leonard Leo has corralled to get this supermajority on the Supreme Court as I say, a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism seem to be their, their drift. He's arguing that White House is saying that the plutocrats could not sell their terrible ideas about, you know, we need to pollute more and we need to be taxed less and all the stuff that is actually happening. They couldn't sell their terrible ideas to the legislative branch through elections or through the presidency and the executive branch. So they targeted the low-hanging fruit, the judicial branch, and more and more uh, you can see the government ability to regulate is being stripped away by this court, and it could go yes. so much further. You've got the Chevron deference situation coming up. So that seems to me to be right on the money, isn't it? Yes. I, I, I think that uh, the courts are 
a place where not only where conservatives can capture the courts, but they can capture them and hold the territory for a very long time. Um, and if you think about in our system, the two most reliably conservative, politically conservative um, institutions are the Supreme Court and state legislatures, because they're they're often so gerrymandered that the the conservatives and Republicans have a, a more representation than they would otherwise get just based on who people are and where they live. And that's why one of the cases that the court is going to be hearing or has heard, but is probably going to rule on, uh, although it may declare it all moot, um, is, is this case called Moore versus Harper, which is the absurd and outlandish idea that the Constitution somehow gave state legislatures the power to set federal election rules without checks and balances from state courts and state constitutions or governors signing and vetoing bills or the voters. And uh, it's a it's a crackpot idea, but it had the support of at least four justices to have the case heard. Um, and in the past, Roberts has actually supported it, though he seems probably to have switched in his views. And it's not really such a surprise that that's the most politically conservative part of the whole system of government at any level. But um, I, you know, I think, I think that's, that's true. Um, I think that there's a broader story that I tell in my book though, which is important to remember and understand. This is not the first time the Supreme court has overreached in this way has made. And these rulings like on abortion rights on guns, are actually very unpopular with the public. We know that. Most of the time, the Supreme Court hugs the middle. It basically reflects whatever the consensus is in the country at the time, throughout our history. But a few times, the court has been very aggressive, partisan, or unduly activist, or ideological. And when that happens, there's a big pushback. There's a cycle of overreach and backlash. It happened in the 1850s with the Dred Scott ruling, which said that slavery could not be prohibited by Congress uh, from the territories and it had to be national in effect, um, and that even more that black people could not be citizens because they were so inferior. The response to that was so intense, it led to the election of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency and the rise of the Republican Party and the Civil War and the end of slavery. We had a similar overreach and backlash in the early 20th century. At that time, talking about plutocrats, you know, this was the, the end of the Gilded Age. The Supreme Court of that time thought its job was to try to stop government from protecting workers and women and public safety. Uh, and there was a huge pushback. And, and one of the things I learned in writing the book is that, for example, the 1912 presidential election, when Teddy Roosevelt ran as the progressive candidate, uh, against his successor, William Howard Taft. And it's kind of a famous epic campaign because you had Roosevelt and Taft and Woodrow Wilson was the Democrat. And then there was Eugene Debs, the socialist. They don't make campaigns like that anymore. Roosevelt's big issue was taking on the Supreme Court uh, and demanding uh, that it stop issuing rulings like that. And he had some kind of out there ideas, but that was the big issue. Um, leading up to, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, his cousin, taking on the court during the New Deal uh, and and having a real showdown, leading leading ultimately leading the court to back down. 
And another era is actually some of the rulings from the 1960s and 70s where there has been a massive conservative backlash to the Warren court. And we are still living in that backlash. And so I do think that even though these judges have lifetime tenure, uh, it can, they can misjudge their role so profoundly. And I think that is as a general matter, what this supermajority is doing, the public response can be so intense that it can help really shake up the political system. I think you can see evidence of that. Now the Democrats did better in the midterm elections than any party in control of the white house has done in decades. Um, in response to Dobbs, the abortion case, and uh, and fears over democracy. You saw it in the Wisconsin state Supreme Court election a couple of months ago, where it's a pretty evenly divided state among the voters, including on these judicial elections, and it swung to an 11-point win for the liberal candidate for, judge, for justice on the court. Again, a referendum on the direction of the courts on abortion rights and redistricting and other things. So there are things we the people can do ways to push back, but there's no doubt that having this kind of ideological political machine entrenched in a branch of government where there's no elections and where it's lifetime appointments is, is a, is a challenge. It's one of the reasons, one of not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons among many why I think term limits for Supreme court justices make a lot of sense. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but let's hope that Roberts has a change of mind about Citizens United, which, as you point out, has basically created in a new Gilded Age system where billionaires dominate the electoral system. In 2010, billionaires spent $31 million in federal races. A decade later, in 2020, they spent $2.2 billion, and last year, the billionaire Peter Thiel tried to buy two Senate seats and, and ended up with one, so... Yeah, I would not. I wouldn't hold my breath on John Roberts switching. (laughs) Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Michael. I appreciate it. Thank you. And we've been speaking with Michael Waldman, the president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. His latest book just out is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into whether the breaching of the dam in Ukraine that has caused catastrophic environmental damage is an act of ecocide. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the Netherlands is Kate McIntosh, who is Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA. She was also Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal, for the legal Definition of Ecocide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kate McIntosh. Lovely to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Kate. And does ecocide apply to what has just happened in Ukraine with the breaching of the dam that has done extraordinary damage downstream just to human life as well as environmental damage? There's something like 150 tons of machine oil for the turbines on the hydroelectric plant that was blown up. 
and it was under Russian occupation, so the assumption is that the Russians did it. And there's something like another 300 tons of the oil as well that could get into the environment, along with other downstream effects from factories and, and just in general pollution that happens when you flood. So is that what we've just witnessed in Ukraine and fit the definition of ecocide? Well, there are two answers to that, actually. First of all, I'd just like to say, I mean, it's just absolutely devastating, isn't it, what's happened? And I've also been following, like we all have, and, and reading about the landmines that are being swept into the fields, and as well as just people losing their homes. And oh. um, But it's been talked about as ecocide, which is interesting. Now, um, ecocide as we've discussed it in the past, Ian, is this proposed new international crime, right? Acts that cause severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment that would be an international crime on the same level as war crimes, crimes against humanity and even genocide. That has not actually been made an international crime yet. That's the campaign that I'm part of. But if we look at what we've proposed as the definition for ecocide, um, assuming that this was a deliberate act by the Russian military, which I, I don't think we know at this stage for sure, but assuming that it was, this would definitely fall into our definition for an international crime of ecocide, there's no doubt. Uh, this is clearly causing severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment, both, in fact. It would satisfy all three criteria. Um, as I said, though, uh, this does not actually exist as an international crime, but... Ukraine, as a country, does have ecocide with a different definition in its national criminal code. And this is one of the reasons that you know, President Zelensky and also the Ukrainian prosecutor general has been talking, not just in the context of the Nova Kakova Dam, but also previously about potential prosecutions for ecocide in Ukraine. So Ukraine, along with all the other former Soviet states um, and Vietnam, have the crime of ecocide in their criminal code with a slightly different definition to the one that we are proposing as an international crime. It's just a more general, it's a broader definition. We've been kind of more specific about it. So this means that um, in Ukraine, prosecutions undertaken by the Ukrainian prosecutor general, who is prosecuting already for war crimes and investigating you know, other crimes related to the, con to the conflict, that prosecutor could prosecute um, somebody, an individual, for the damage caused uh, through the destruction of the Nova Kakova Dam as ecocide. It doesn't have to become an international crime before that could actually happen in Ukraine. So if it becomes international law, I guess that it is an international issue, surely, as much yeah. as crimes against humanity or crimes against all of us and crimes against the planet, um, since it's in itself an ecosystem. Yeah. Is that is that the logic behind why the whole world is involved in this? It's not just a local issue? That's exactly the logic. I mean, in a way, it's almost the most obvious crime against humanity, crime against all of us, right? I mean, we know that genocide is an international crime because the attempt to destroy a human group is not just a crime against that group. It's a crime against all of us. We are all poorer if an entire human group is eradicated. Massive destruction to the planet. As you said, we're all one ecosystem. We're all connected. It seems to be 
absolutely obvious that environmental destruction anywhere in the world affects all of us and so is a of concern to the international community as a whole which is pretty much the definition of an international crime well it's not a crime i guess what's happening with the fires in canada but fires in canada are making life uh, miserable for yeah. people in the united states so i guess there's an example um, yes i mean that's you know it would be interesting to think through where some potentially criminal activity might have occurred in that chain of events, right? I mean, what is causing the fires? What, what are the structural underlying causes of the fires? Are there any individuals uh, in positions of power such that the decisions that they have taken in the past have led to the situation of the fires in Canada and so on? I mean, that you know, it's time for us to start thinking about those sort of decisions in a criminal law framework. You know, it can't just be a regulatory issue or something that is dealt with by suing for damages. These massive, massive acts of environmental destruction that we're seeing, you know, pop up in, in different ways all across the globe. It, it's really time that we realise that those acts have to have criminal consequences. So would the International Criminal Court be the venue then to try these cases? Well, at the moment, it won't be because the ecocide hasn't been included into the statute. Um, but we have made the proposal and uh, several states um, have got behind that. Um, the actual formal process for amending the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court to include ecocide hasn't started yet. And we have an opportunity every year at the annual meeting of the court in December um, for a state to formally put that proposal on the table. And it might be that it's this December, actually, this issue of the dam in Ukraine, just to bring us back to your original question, and the way that has been spoken about as ecocide, I think has um, advanced the agenda of putting ecocide on the international criminal law agenda or, or including it into international law, because people like President Zelensky are talking about ecocide in the same breath as they're talking about war crimes or crimes against humanity that are being committed there. So, you know, there are, there are movements from all sorts of different parts of the globe. We've got the small island states like Vanuatu and Samoa and Tuvalu very much in the front of this, eco, you know, make ecocide a crime campaign. We've got um, President Zelensky talking about ecocide in conflict in Ukraine. We've got the European Parliament proposing uh, more or less exactly the text that we suggested for the crime of ecocide be included in all European member state criminal law. So it's sort of approaching from all different directions. The question will be to see, you know, when we get to that tipping point that it actually moves into, into being incorporated into international law. Well, obviously, uh, Russia, if it becomes clear and it's proven that Russia was blew up the dam and cause this disaster, this would add to the fact that um, Vladimir Putin's already been indicted, right, for war crimes in the case, mm -hmm. uh, specifically for kidnapping children. What's the situation vis-a-vis -vis Russia? I mean, my understanding is that neither Russia or the United States are signatories to the International Criminal Court. That's absolutely right, yeah. So um, they are not. However, uh, as you know, uh, the reason that President Putin has been able to be indicted by the International Criminal Court is that 
he's being indicted for acts committed on the territory of Ukraine, or acts allegedly committed on the territory of Ukraine, I should say. And Ukraine has accepted the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court over its territory, at least for this period. So that's why Putin can be indicted, even though Russia has not joined the International Criminal Court system. So the same would apply um, for that, you know, if if uh, Russian military were found to be responsible for the for destroying the dam, that of course is on Ukrainian territory, even though occupied by Russia. So the same logic would apply. Uh, although, as I've as we've been saying, that would ecocide at the moment wouldn't be what they'd be able to be prosecuted for. But it seems if that was a deliberate act, um, it's very likely to also have been a war crime. Uh, so there would be already law on the books uh, under international law at the International Criminal Court for which people could be held accountable. Well, Putin uh, is in, has a bit of a problem attending the upcoming BRICS conference in Johannesburg or the BRICS summit, BRICS being Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. And South Africa is hosting the summit in August and Putin says he's going to come and apparently the South African leader was more or less telling him not to come, but I think they've worked out some kind of deal to give him immunity. But South Africa is a signatory to the International Criminal Court and is therefore obliged to arrest Putin. Is that the situation as you understand it, Kate? That, that is the situation as I understand it, yes. And of course, South Africa has a bit of a checkered history on this because you'll remember that Omar al-Bashir of Sudan travelled to South Africa when he was under indictment was also not arrested, but South African um, civil society, essentially, who felt very strongly that he should have been, managed to get that situation considered by the South African Supreme Court, which then, I mean, he'd already left the territory, so it had no immediate effect, but the court did hold that the government should have arrested him. So, you know, there is that precedent in South Africa. Um, but, I mean, obviously, South Africa is, it would be under, is a very difficult position for it to be in. And uh, I think, as you say, that they're, they're trying to trying to avoid uh, being confronted with that um, with that with that decision and with that choice. Um, that, that does make it difficult for President Putin. And of course, that's one of the reasons that the I mean, I assume that that would be one of the reasons. It's certainly one of the um, effects of the indictment that the prosecutors issued is that um, President Putin of Russia is, you know, not able to travel as freely as he as he was before the indictment. So just uh, to go back on something you said earlier, Kate, about the small island nations in the Pacific that are mm-hmm. going under the ocean because of the rising ocean because of uh, global warming, the culprit in terms of global warming are the industrial states, right, those that... Mm-hmm put the most CO2 into the air, and I guess the U.S. would be high up on that list, right, along with China and India. Mm-hmm. And how does that translate in, in terms of criminal responsibility? In terms of criminal responsibility, it's uh, criminal responsibility in this case for a new crime is a bit of an imperfect tool because of course, you can't hold somebody criminally responsible for acts that were not criminal at the time they committed them. So were in ecocide to be introduced, or I should say when ecocide is introduced as an international crime, which I'm sure it will be, it won't be retrospective. It will only be forward-looking, which is you know, slightly unfair in terms of historic emissions and the burden of, you know, which should be borne by the by the global north. Um, 
In parallel to developments on eco side, there's a really interesting thing happening at the International Court of Justice, which you, you may have been following, which is the General Assembly um, in, I think it was March, or maybe it was more recent than that, I can't remember, perhaps April, uh, passed a resolution unanimously, actually, um, asking the International Court of Justice to deliver an advisory opinion on the responsibility of states for climate change and in the face of climate change. And there are two elements to that question that's going to be before the International Court of Justice. One is what states' responsibility is for historic acts, and the other is what states' responsibility is going forward. And you know, those two questions fall very differently on different actors. So the historic acts, of course, is very much the, uh, the early industrialised states, let's say, of the global north. Whereas when we look at responsibilities going forward, you clearly have uh, nations like China and India also very much in the picture. So as far as um, you know, global burden sharing and taking into account historic emissions, the international legal responsibilities of states on that point are actually going to be considered by the, by the World Court, by the International Court of Justice, which is going to be really interesting. So just in closing, uh, could we have a regime where there is an accepted global regime for punishing people who release CO2 into the atmosphere, whether it's from the exhaust pipes of cars or from methane from farming or stationary sources from coal-fired power plants, which is a big problem in China. So you think that's on the horizon? I do think it's on the horizon. I think it would have to be, I mean, the kind of acts that we would envisage for ecocide would, of course, be on a massive scale. So it wouldn't be that individuals would be responsible for individual emissions under international criminal law. I mean, that's much too low level. This would only be relevant for the decisions and actions of people who have the kind of power and authority, which means that those decisions could create severe, widespread severe and either widespread or long-term damage. And, and the idea, of course, is that that will really change the um, cost-benefit analysis in deciding whether to proceed uh, with acts which are massively destructive to the environment. Uh, so I do, think, I do think that's the way we're heading. I think there's also massive developments in attribution science, which are making it a lot easier to understand, you know, which actions are causing different elements of... Um, the climate crisis. So I do think it will be easier to trace that back for historical, for uh, individual responsibility. But as I said, the idea is really with ecocide as an international crime to look at those, you know, massive corporations or government actors who have, you know, huge responsibility and power and to change their behaviour, to change their risk analysis and to steer them away from acts that are going to cause the kind of damage that we would say equates to ecocide. Okay, Macintosh, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome, Ian. And we've been speaking with Kate Macintosh, who is Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA, and who is also the Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide, and she joined us from the Netherlands. We're going to take a brief station break and back, assessing the impact on European public opinion of revelations in the Washington Post that a small group of Ukrainian operatives were behind the blowing up of the Nord Stream gas pipelines. Uh, 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Charles Kupchin, who was Director of European Affairs on the National Security Councils during the Clinton and Obama administrations. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Kupchin. Good to be uh, with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Charles. And what do you make of the Washington Post story that broke on Tuesday, June the 6th? U.S. had intelligence of detailed Ukrainian plan to attack Nord Stream pipeline. The CIA learned last June via a European spy agency that a six-person team of Ukrainian special operations forces intended to sabotage the Russia to Germany natural gas project. Well, you know, it does give us a bit more clarity as to what may have happened uh, ever since the explosion on the, the Nord Stream pipeline, there's been a huge amount of speculation about who may have carried out the attack. The United States and its allies accused the Russians, the Russians accused the United States and or the Europeans. Now it looks like it was probably the Ukrainians that carried it out. Number one, because we have the evidence that there was a plan afoot. Uh, and number two, the Washington Post piece did provide some details about uh, the rental of a sailing vessel, about the potential uh, Ukrainian or pro-Ukrainian individuals that participated. So we don't yet have hard and fast facts, but I would say that the weight of opinion at this point does make it look like this was carried out by Ukrainian uh, uh, intelligence services. How high up in the government uh, the the operation was known about, assuming it was the Ukrainians, I think we, we just don't know at this point. Well, it's from the outset, it would be more logical for the Ukrainians to be the authors of this attack. So what do you think happened with the U.S. government? Did they have real-time intelligence, if because this, this material was provided by an allied spy agency a couple of months before the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up. And the Washington Post actually got it from the leaks from this uh, 21-year-old airman who was sharing top-secret information with teenagers in his chat group. And the Washington Post got from one of the teenagers uh, the, the documents so that in itself is pretty bizarre, don't you think, Charles? Yeah. I mean, the, the these leaks, the so-called Discord leaks, uh, have really put a lot of information out there in the, in the public domain. Uh, you know, this is a puzzling story, Ian, because the Nord Stream pipeline, especially Nord Stream 2, which was the second of these two major trunk lines, was never operational. It was opposed by the Obama administration. It was opposed by the Trump administration. Then Biden, to try to improve relations with uh, Berlin, says, you know, we don't like this, but if you have to do it, go ahead. But then when the war began, or actually just before the war began, the Russian invasion, the Germans said, we're not going to approve this. We're not going to open it. And then about a month before the attack, because of the the sanctions that are developing and because the the Russians are trying to use gas as a as a weapon, they stop the flow of Nord Stream 1. So 
Effectively, there was no gas flowing through these lines at the time that the explosion took place, which makes the attack even more bizarre. Uh, yes, the Ukrainians did have a very compelling reason to prevent the gas from flowing through those lines. Number one, because it would provide more revenue to the, the Russians, which they could use in the war. And number two, the Ukrainians were worried that they would not get the transit fees that they get for Russian oil and gas that are running through pipelines. And strangely enough, even though this war is raging, Russian oil and gas are still running through Ukraine and Russia is paying fees to Ukraine for that flow. That pipeline you're referring to, Charles, I think that supplies Hungary, does it not? Yes, I believe it it, it flows through uh, Ukraine and supplies gas to uh, uh, several Central European countries, including Hungary, I believe also Slovakia and the Czech Republic. Right. So since you worked on the National Security Council of both the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, it would seem to me that they had to know about this document before it happened. So the decision was made to blame the Russians because you didn't want to blame the Ukrainians because that's going to upset people in Western Europe who are going to be freezing in the winter. Was that the thinking? You know, I don't know. I mean, we, the, the Post story was really about what intelligence was shared with the United States, what the United States did with that intelligence, who had it, we don't really have much insight into. Now, it could be that the U.S. got that intelligence and said to the Ukrainians, you know, we think you better not do this. It's probably not a good idea. It could be that the U.S. got the intelligence and felt it didn't need to say much about it because as far as they knew it, it wasn't, the operation wasn't in the works. Nord Stream 2 was never opened. Uh, and so the U.S. may have thought that this operation wasn't going to take place. We, we just don't know. What we do know is that the U.S. has, from the beginning, given counsel to the Ukrainians about what they deem to be wise uh, military uh, operations and, and what we deem to be unwise military operations. Uh, for example, uh, reporting suggests that the Washington was unhappy with uh, a bomb attack that was carried out that ended up killing the daughter of a prominent Russian propagandist. Uh, now there's reporting that Ukraine may have been behind drone attacks against the Kremlin and against residential areas in Moscow. Uh, I'm not sure what the Biden administration uh, would say about that, but I'm guessing they're not too enthusiastic about it. But exactly what information Washington had and what, if anything, they said to the Ukrainian government about this before the fact, I think we just don't know at this point. Well, it's my understanding, Charles, that the uh, drone attacks on the residential neighborhood in Moscow struck right at the apartments of senior GRU and, and FSB officials. Well, I, you know, I think that the, that the Ukrainians have every right to strike 
against targets inside Russia. They are being attacked. They have suffered an act of aggression. Russia is recklessly, indiscriminately bombing Ukrainian cities. Uh, as far as we know, it looks like the Russians likely were the perpetrators of the dam collapse this week that has flooded Kherson and other parts of, of southern uh, Ukraine. So that, you know, the, if, the, if the Ukrainians are indeed carrying out strikes against Russian territory, they certainly have a right to do so. I'm guessing that there are two main objectives. One is, especially against uh, targets in the south of Ukraine, to interrupt the supply chains, the logistical lines, the depots that the Russians use to support their operations in Ukraine. That's also why they're hitting targets in Crimea. And secondly, I think they're trying to send a message to the Russian population that your country is at war because Putin has been trying to send the opposite message, which is, hey, life goes on as normal. Don't worry about it. Go about your daily lives. And now you have attacks in the south. You have some attacks in Moscow. I think that the Ukrainians are saying you Russians, your country uh, is at war. Again, what kind of advice the U.S. is giving the Ukrainians, I think, is, is, is unclear. There have been indications that the U.S. would rather see the Ukrainians use the military capability that it has against targets that are more militarily significant, that is to say, Russian fighting positions in eastern Ukraine. So back to the decision to blame this on the Russians, which you know came from the White House, and that's the kind of reporting that I and others repeated. As a journalist, you don't like coming across as a shill for government propaganda. So what do you think was behind that? Was it what I was suggesting earlier, Charles, that they didn't want to blame the Ukrainians because they didn't want to upset the NATO countries and Russia was a convenient target? You know, I, I think we need to wait, Ian, until we have a clearer sense of, of the facts, uh, who in the U.S. government had this intelligence, did the U.S. government at the time of the explosion believe that it was the Ukrainians. Uh, I, I think we just should withhold judgment at this time. You know, as an analyst, I was uh, puzzled by the the attack because it didn't strike me as um, a, a target that made sense for anybody, given that the pipeline had effectively been shut down. It struck me as the most plausible scenario that the Russians had done it because they have been they may have been trying to send a message to the Europeans. Your critical infrastructure is not safe. We can, if we want to shut down your energy systems, your electrical grids, your pipelines. Uh, that struck me as a plausible proposition. Now with this leak, it looks like that was not uh, um, an, uh, an accurate assessment and that it, it more likely than not was an operation carried out by, uh, by Ukraine. But again, you know, we have, we have the discord leak about the intelligence. We don't have much information about who had that intelligence in the U.S. government 
and whether that uh, that information was acted upon in terms of the communications with Kiev. Well, what we do know, though, Charles, is that the Seymour Hirsch article was complete nonsense, and it might as well have been written by the Kremlin. Peskov, Putin's spokesman, was urging everybody to read the Seymour Hirsch piece, which was complete fiction. With the advantage of hindsight, it certainly looks like complete, complete fiction. And I found it pretty interesting that Seymour Hirsch was really out there by himself, you know, despite the fact that that information was was circulating, there really wasn't any corroboration from from any other sources, which I think gave us good reason to be skeptical about the veracity uh, of that of that report. Uh, so yeah, it looks it looks pretty clear that that he got that one wrong. So just in the last couple of minutes, I wanted to ask you because we've had previous conversations, Charles, about the possibility of instability within Russia itself and the frightening things about what Prigozhin has been up to lately and the kind of statements he's made and the, and the open warfare against the Russian military and its chief of staff and its defense minister, Shoigu, is frightening in the sense that when a state loses its monopoly over violence and you have warlords, and in this case in Russia you've got warlords like Hadirov and Prigozhin, and now we're learning that Gazprom has at least two separate military units, and Putin had his own National Guard or Praetorian Guard. So I'm concerned if there's any kind of coup attempt against Putin, the idea that this nuclear-armed country with the world's largest nuclear arsenal could disintegrate into a kind of a factional fighting amongst warlords, which is what we're witnessing now in Sudan. You know, I think at least for now, the prospect of that kind of fragmentation of Russia is pretty low, despite the fact that this is a, not a war that has gone well for Putin. He still has the support of the majority of the Russian population. Most Russians are getting their information from state-controlled outlets, uh, and that's one of the reasons that uh, public support has remained fairly strong. You know, the, the, the sanctions have been reasonably effective in certain sectors, but the Russian economy is doing okay. Yes, you've had some attacks in the southern reaches of Russia and some drone strikes in Moscow, but this is not yet a war that the vast majority of the Russian population is feeling. Uh, Putin is relying heavily on minorities when he conscripts to send folks down into, into Donbass. So it may be that if this war drags on and on, things for Putin could get tough. There could be efforts to unseat him. But right now, I don't think we're, we're anywhere near that situation. And Putin has built a government that effectively relies on patronage surrounded himself with people that benefit from his rule politically and financially. And at least for now, that system of, of patronage is looking pretty intact. No signs yet that the state 
the, the FSB, the security services, the military have begun to peel away from him. So just in closing then, when Pogosin recently said in an interview that Russia should turn itself into North Korea, seal its borders, get its act together, create a kind of Stalinist state, and then come back and attack Ukraine. You, you don't see that as a... <laughs> is that the ramblings of this psychotic warlord? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing is a reorientation of Russia toward China, deepening trade ties with India, pushing ahead with a narrative about Russia fighting the battle of anti-colonialism and doing its best to win over the global south. Uh, Russia hasn't given up uh, on, uh, on many parts of the world, even though it has been uh, effectively unplugged from the Western economy and, and Western banks. Uh, and without that kind of isolation, without uh, really cutting Russia off from India, from Turkey, from Georgia, from China, uh, I think this is a war that, the, unfortunately, the Russians can sustain for quite some time, which is why, at least in my own book, we ought to think about introducing diplomacy when this coming Ukrainian offensive comes to an end to see if we can't shut the war down sooner rather than later. Well, Charles Caption, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And we've been speaking with Charles Kupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton and Obama administrations, and he's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.